Well, I'm glad you guys are here today. We're finishing up a series on touchy subjects. And um, it seems like whenever we deal with touchy subjects, Mike always gives me the one about marriage. <clears throat> My wife isn't here now, so I'm going to act like I know what I'm talking about and share with you words of wisdom. But seriously, um, we have all kinds of uh, misinformation about what marriage is supposed to be. And so t- today we're going to kind of unpack some of those and maybe we'll be able to develop some reasonable expectations. Well, I, I went to uh, a source to find some really great stuff on, on marriage, and we came up with some questions that uh, kids have answered. And so we're going to share a little bit of that with you this morning. Uh, for instance, here's one. How do you decide who to marry? Uh, well, you you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Alan, age 10. He's still single. <clears throat> no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decided, decides it uh, all way before. You get to find out later who you're stuck with. <clears throat> Kristen, age 10. Thank you. Um, how can you tell if a stra- how, how can you tell if strangers are, are married? Derek says you may have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> it, it makes sense. <laughs> um, so, uh, what what do your mom and dad have in common? Lori, age eight, says both don't want any more kids. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> what do most people do on dates? says, dates are for fun. Uh, people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. That's from Lynette, age 8. Thank you, Lynette. We're working on using her words. <clears throat> when is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, age 7, says, when they're rich. <laughs> you got to wait for it. <clears throat> Kurt, same age, 7. Uh, He says that the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. (laughs) Is it better to be single or married? Anita says it's better for girls to be single but not boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. (laughs) Bless you, child. (laughs) Uh, How would the world be different if people didn't get married? Now, Kelvin, age 8, probably grew up in 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 a... Christ-centered home because his observation was there sure would be a lot of kids to explain, wouldn't there? (laughs) Right? How would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10, says, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. (laughs) Okay. I believe Ricky and Alan are splitting an apartment (laughs) right now. There's this gap between expectations and reality. And and that margin, that space between, I call frustration. And that has a big impact on whatever it is that you're dealing with. If your favorite basketball team finishes second in March Madness, to some places that would seem like a raving success, unless you're a Kentucky fan. We're supposed to win it every year. Eh? Amen? Amen? So, you know, 
your expectations impact, no matter how impressive an event may be, the anticipated uh, outcome is interpreted directly by our expectations. It's good or bad or not quite what we're looking for. One of the reasons people are frustrated with marriage is that our anticipation of what marriage is going to be like doesn't match up with our reality. So feeling deprived and hurt, people bail out. Or, or they try and find other ways of, of meeting their needs, sometimes through inappropriate relationships. Some just spend their life going through the motions with a roommate to split the bills, missing out on the blessing that God was trying to give them. Well, in Luke 14, Jesus said, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build but wasn't able to finish. You see, Jesus encouraged his followers to coordinate their expectations with reality. Yes, the God of immeasurably more than you ask or imagine wanted us to count the cost. That's one of the reasons at MCC, before people place membership, we ask that they attend a class. It's not a special hoop. We just want you to know what you're getting into. You can walk in with an informed decision. What I want to do today is identify and, and hopefully correct some misconceptions that people have about marriage. And I hope the message will not just help us endure a relationship that's struggling, but maybe give us some tools to see that it can prosper under God's blessing. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a big deal. We're here and we're, we're talking about this institution that you've created. And Father, we want to understand it, not through the lens of our culture, not through uh, what we think or the experiences that we have or the way that we grew up. We want to see from your word what it is that you've mapped out for us and understand maybe the purposes behind it. So Lord, we're asking you to lead. Holy Spirit, help us to see your word. Help us to hear uh, what you're trying to communicate to us as individuals. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that first myth is, is a simple one. I will live happily ever after. <laughs> Good luck with that. I think one of the reasons that we think marriage is supposed to be continual bliss is that we've developed this shallow understanding of what love is. Our, our culture is telling us that love is about how you feel. And so if you don't feel it, you're not in it. If we love each other, we'll feel good and we'll always be happy. We've been conditioned from childhood with stories like Cinderella and Snow White that Prince Charming is going to come in, sweep the girl off her feet. Romance novels are filled with tales of thoughtful men who are spontaneous and always say the right things. Movies have brought to life that same one-dimensional guy on the silver screen. Ladies, I'm not saying thoughtful guys who plan creative dates and thinks before he speaks is a bad thing. <laughs> There's just more to the guy than that. And, and guys, I'm not here to get you off the hook for being a goon. <laughs> Women like those things 
because it resonates with a desire God put in their heart to be cherished by their husbands. Emotion is certainly involved in love, but it only scratches the surface. Feeling is a byproduct of emotion, not its source. Did you get that? When you read the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it, you see a lot of stuff that talks about attitudes and action, but there's not a whole lot in there about emotion. Verses 4 through 8, you kind of read this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not proud or rude. It is not selfish or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Love never fails. Emotions? always do. Emotions are going to change. They're going to fade. As long as we think that love is a feeling and we're always going to feel good, we're setting ourselves up to fail. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we read these words, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but consider others better than yourself. Now, in church world, we can apply that passage of Scripture to a thousand different scenarios, but none better than husbands and wives. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. What's this going to get me? But consider the other better than yourself. God has a plan for your marriage. Some of it actually has to do with you. You see, God is laser-focused on the eternal condition of mankind. And marriage was created to be a beautiful analogy of God's love for us. You are someone's son or daughter. Tough. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. You can't get a blood transfusion. You can't back out of it. You can't get emancipated. You, You can't break up. You are who you are by birth, except husbands and wives. That relationship exists in the context of choice. Husband and wives, you you can stop doing that, right? I saw a few years back in, I think, uh, Office Depot, like the legal forms that you could buy off the shelf. Divorce stuff was one of those things that you could pick up at the Office Depot. A promise. And that relationship exists in the context of unconditional love. That's the only way it works. And when it does... It is the most beautiful reflection of the love that God has for us. It's not by birth. It's by choice. I choose to be here and love, not based on how I'm treated, but I will see this person as more important than me. So, marriage is hard. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's hard. It takes work. It takes attention. It can be done well. 
if you give it those attentions. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, don't read a lot of that into your your marriage is supposed to be like death. I want you to key in on the fact that the God who loved you so much to come here and buy you back gave us an example. In the face of unbelievable opposition, you can hold on to him so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Have you, you know what a bell curve is? Any, any statistician nerds in, in the room, right, the bell curve? Like plus or minus one standard deviation of the mean. <laughs> the bell curve is used sometimes in businesses to represent uh, how, how a business will come from an, an idea or, or recognition uh, of a need. And it pro- processes that growth from birth to success to death. starts with a vision. And then there's enthusiasm and commitment, followed by growth and prosperity and pride. And the business begins to peak out with tradition and acceptance. It becomes old hat. Then comes the beginning of the decline into indifference, stagnation, selfishness, criticism, neglect, death. So business, a leader has got to recognize when his business is about to peak. And then he's got to do something to shock the system. Do something that's really different than what you normally do. I mean, it's like McDonald's and the McRib, right? You know, they throw in something in there that's just not typical. McRib is spam with barbecue sauce, guys. So just don't believe it. But the, the point is, you got to do something that's different. You got to mix things up. You got to shock the system to get out of those ruts. Well, most marriages go through an inverted bell curve. You, you start out at a pretty high level with the thrill and and excitement of of the infatuation and romance of courtship. Then you move into discovery and commitment, right? Like this person makes noises and leaves the toilet seat up and (laughs) what happened to my chips, right? All those kinds of things, reality sets in. And you find yourself at the bottom of the curve with criticism and intolerance. But if you stay with it, If you do God things, God ways, and work through the valley of the shadow, you begin to build on mutual experiences. You you find appreciation and admiration, companionship and dependency. Eventually, you find that energy that helps you reach mature love. Couples who've been married 30-plus years can tell you It gets better and better and better. Wouldn't it be a shame to miss out on the best just because it takes a while and some work to get there? The critical thing is that when you're at the bottom of this bell curve, you've got to do something to shock the system. You're going to have to do something different, something that you've not tried before. Uh, Definition of insanity, you, you keep doing the same things and, Expecting different results. I'm going to go Dr. Phil on you this morning. How's that working? Right? You need to do something different. There are marriage enrichment retreats that happen all over the place. There are ministries that are focused on just marriage. 
There are books that are written. Read one. Uh, right now, media. Everybody here has access to that. If you don't have access to that, uh, office at Explore MCC and tell them you want it. We'll send you the link. You can watch videos together that help you become a better husband or wife. Those things exist for real reasons. Maybe the thing that you need to do is institute date night. It's going to happen every other week, every week. You're, you're going to do something to date one another. Maybe the thing that you need to do is something as simple as apologize. Just own your part of the problem. Just own it. And say you don't want to live like that anymore. You have to do something to reverse the trend because the longer the trend exists, the more difficult it is to reverse the trend. The, The second is I will change my mate after we're married. Right? I've heard that a thousand times. One of the major contributing factors to this myth is our custom of dating. Courtship is a deceptive process, right? Guys, you're getting ready to go out on a date with that pretty woman that you're trying to sucker into <laughs> thinking you are all that in a bag of chips. You dig out that bottle of brute you got in ninth grade. You freshen yourself up. You take her to some fancy restaurant like Frisch's and, and buy her spaghetti on the first date. <laughs> I was a poor college kid at the time. Our temperament, our background, those things are are deeply entrenched in who we are. And we try and hide some of those things because we're all aware that we have flaws, right? We'll say things like, oh, I'd love to go to your three softball games this week, right? Guys, yes, I would love to watch The Sound of Music with you. (laughs) Truth be told, we don't change much or at least quickly after we're married. The stuff that has made us who we are is deeply entrenched. Have you heard the term neuroplasticity, right? The, the company that wants to exercise your brain, right? It, it's true. When, when something happens and you have a response, there's a, there's a neurological pathway between that, that stimulus and that response. And you do that more times over and over and over, it becomes this little ditch. You, in other words, your brain is conditioned to respond that way because it's the path of least resistance. And when you get married, you find out that that's not cool, but that trough is pretty darn deep. What do you got to do? You, you got to fight to fill it in and put it in the right place, and it's hard. It's not long after we get married that we start to relax and revert into the real self that we've been hiding all along, and then we see thoughtless words and moody attitudes, strange habits and funny sounds, foul smells, and we think, this isn't the person I married. Yes, it is. She was just faking it. Right? Just kidding. Sort of. Girls, if you want to know how that guy's going to treat you, watch how he treats his mother. Guys, if you're curious about how that girl's going to respond and react to you, look at how she responds to maybe a teacher or a roommate. That's probably the level of respect that you're going to get. We have to go into this with our eyes wide open. And one of the challenging things is to not try and change our partner after we're married, 
but it's in adjusting to them. It's learning to understand how they become the person that they are. It's being enhanced by those differences as the two become one flesh. It's one of the reasons that the Bible is so clear on its teaching. First, or Second Corinthians six fourteen: Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And I know those are harsh sounding words, but here's the here's the gist of what it's trying to say. There are enough natural and developmental differences between men and women partnering with somebody outside of your faith, they don't hold to the same values and, and morals and that, that you do it is, is just a huge thing to weigh down your relationship. Partnering with another believer is vital because it's those core values that will shape and structure your homes. It will mold the lives of your children. It will determine your impact on, on God's kingdom. A third myth that we've been sold is marriage is a 50-50 partnership and leadership will never be a problem in our home, right? I, I mess with couples when they get married. <laughs> I have, they have to come to my, I got to get them a book. They have to read this book and we talk through the contents of this book and it's just so fun because, you know, they're all doe-eyed and like in love <laughs> and, and I ask them things like, so, so who's going to be the leader in your home? And the guy will go, not sure how to respond, but usually I get an answer like, you know, we're going to share responsibilities in different areas. That makes sense. That makes sense. What happens when there's a, a, a disagreement? You can't, you can't come to the same conclusion. They say, oh, well, we'll, we'll, just, um, we'll just talk it through and come to a mutual understanding. Good luck with that, right? Our culture <clears throat> sees stuff in the Bible as sometimes offensive. And based on that current culture, the idea that a wife would be submissive to her husband's leadership seems to be the most embarrassing teaching in Scripture. It, 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 it seems to be archaic or sexist. After all, we, we, we live in a world where, where women are killing it. They're, they're in the political field. They're in professional fields. They're CEOs, in, professional in every arena. But what I'm going to say is, is not very politically correct. I believe that part of the struggle between what we see in God's Word and what our culture is saying is that the church has not modeled male-female equality very well. We've done a poor job. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God did not create Eve because Adam was broken. He created Eve because God exists in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so his image bearer needed community as well. And God's perfect answer to this situation was woman. You see, it takes two to bear his image. Only male, only female, it's only half the story. We were created as equals, two halves, not top half, bottom half, side by side, equals. The biblical problem 
with some of our culture is in the pursuit, the right pursuit, the correct pursuit to promote equality. Some are trying to advocate that the answer is sameness. And equality and sameness are not what God is talking about. We cannot afford to lose the awesome, distinct differences in the two sexes. That would be undoing what God started at creation when he made us. Let's celebrate the uniqueness of God's design. And in doing so, let's treat everyone with the honor and respect that is due a son or daughter of God. Husbands and wives both bring unique gifts and skills to the table. And all of those tools are intended by God to be brought to bear on the issues that face a family. Both the husband and the wife have wisdom and insight and vast experience that help us make wise decisions. And Ephesians 5, 22, 25 paints a picture of the responsibilities and the call of God on husbands and wives. And he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Please hear the rest of what we're saying. That does not say lordship. It says leadership. It's referring to leadership. Husbands, you love as Christ loved the church. He sacrificed for the church. He died for the church. Tony Campalo, a Christian author, said, what woman would have trouble submitting to a husband who she knew would lay his life down for her. Submission is not menial servanthood. It just means that sometimes when you can't come to a mutual agreement, you submit to his leadership and you trust God to hold him accountable. A, a prime example of this kind of, of life is poured out in a beautiful woman named Sarah. Her story is recorded in Genesis chapters 12 through uh, 23. Sarah had expectations about her marriage, right, just like we would. She expected to be loved. Her husband was a gentle man with a gentle spirit. She expected to be provided for. She knew he was a wealthy man. She expected to trust him completely. His reputation was that he was a godly man. She expected to be protected. He had resources. The man had an army. She should feel safe. She expected to have children. And after Sarah mar married Abraham, she discovered that her experiences didn't measure up to her expectations. Go figure. A few years into the marriage, Abraham said that they were going to move. Sarah said, okay, where? He said, I don't know. God's going to tell me. And from that point on, Sarah lived in a tent. Abraham kept giving a good portion of what he had away. He, he pampered his nephew Lot and his materialistic wife, and that wasn't wise on his part. Once when there was a famine in the land, Abraham took his family and moved to Egypt. When he got there, he became fearful, and he said to Sarah, you, you, you're beautiful, and they're going to kill me to get to you. So if anybody asks, just say you're my sister. And she discovered that this man of integrity was sometimes a dishonest coward. 
Later, Sarah got frustrated because she didn't have any children. And in the midst of that frustration, she told Abraham to have a child with her servant girl, Hagar. Now, I'm not an expert on cultures of the Old Testament, but I've been married 33 years. I know, I know a little bit about women, and I'm going to guess she didn't really, really want that to happen. I'm guessing that maybe there was a part of her that wanted to hear her husband say, No, I would never do a thing like that. What did, what did Abraham do? Okay. Then he couldn't figure out why his home was filled with animosity and frustration, contention. Sarah lived in submission even when it was difficult. And God eventually blessed her with a child, and he fulfilled that promise that he made to her and Abraham. 1 Peter 3, 6 cites Sarah as an example of a godly woman who honored her husband. Another myth, my mate will meet all my needs, right? Anybody have that experience? Anybody? Anybody? No. Sorry about that. We're going to have to keep trying. It's tough to meet the needs of the opposite sex. It's tough to understand them. That's why there are so many books that exist out there, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, His Needs, Her Needs. We are very different, and the failure to understand those differences contributes to a great deal of the dissatisfaction that we find in marriage. Hartley wrote in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, and gives a basic list of needs for women and men. And if you look at the list, it's a little different. For women, he says, some of these basic needs are affection. She wants to be loved and valued. Conversation. Talk to me. Trust. She wants honesty, financial security, family commitment. The top five needs for men are a little different than, than those needs. Um, first, Hartley puts sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship. He, he wants her to share his hobbies, an, an attractive spouse, someone who takes care of their appearance and feels like you know she wants to be... Uh, his special lady. Domestic support. He, he wants a home that's peaceful. Finally, uh, admiration. He, he wants to believe he's her hero. Somehow, when we get married, we think our partner is going to be able to just tap out those lists, completely fulfill us. You complete me. That's just a movie. <laughs> Marriage is the wrong tool for that job. Right? Did you ever feel like that in your marriage? You're standing in front of something that you are ill-equipped to resolve. So what do we do? We, we try to improvise, adapt, and overcome. We put our best ingenuity to, together and come up with solutions to problems that we have, and it's just a struggle. I actually want one of those. <laughs> Here's the truth. Women are thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finally be valued all the time. I'm going to be pursued. 
I'm going to be listened to. And men think, hey, I'm, I'm going to have lots of sex, and somebody's going to cheer for me through every endeavor that I just get myself into. Again, I am the bearer of bad news. It just doesn't work out like that. No one can meet all your needs. No one is designed to meet all your needs. If you expect your mate to fulfill all of your emotional and physical needs, not only will you be disillusioned, but the more you lean on them, that weight is going to wear them out. But when we find God's perspective, after all, this was his idea. And we try and use his truth to help shape our expectations, we find that things get a little closer in that gap between what we expect and what we experience. When we love somebody selflessly, when we do things in the right order, Jesus said in Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and and all these things, they'll be added. I believe that the differences between husbands and wives are the ingredients to the secret sauce. Think about that for a second. Those things that frustrate the snot out of you are not put there by God to get even with you for your parents. Right? I tell couples when they get married, one of the things that I I think you're going to experience if you get in and commit to doing this right is, is the miracle of two become one. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah. Bless their hearts, they don't have a clue. <laughs> because it's, it's that time-honored thing that as you pour into it, as you invest, as you give it attention, as you're intentional about what you do and how you take care of that relationship, something starts to happen. And that thing that God gave is a gift Because he's going to use your spouse to refine you into the best you he could make you. Remember I told you that some of what God was going to do in your marriage was actually for you? That's one of them. Your best version of you is going to be the gift that God brings you through your wife or your husband. So relax and let it happen. Give God the space to be in your relationship. When was the last time you asked God to help you be the husband or wife that your spouse deserves? I want to let that one sink in for just a second. If we're not praying for it to get better, do you think just being there is going to make it that way? We have to invest in this. Maybe you're not happy with what you got in your marriage. It isn't what you hoped it would be. I want to ask you to prayerfully consider that maybe part of the problem exists within your expectations. You see, when you think that this is the thing that's supposed to be about me, we miss the part of selfless love. I believe with God's help, the best is yet to come. I want to do something as we close. I, I, I don't, you just stand up all over the room. Just stand up. If you are standing beside your spouse, 
I'd like you to just take their hand. If you need to walk across the room and find them, just, just go do that. Right? And, and we're going to pray. So there, there are a lot of you who are, who are here right now and your spouse isn't here. Uh, some of you that just walked up on stage. <laughs> some of them are in kids' zone. Some of them are at work. Some of them, some of them don't want to be here. And, and I know that that's hard. But I've been married long enough to know that all of us struggle. We live that life of ups and downs. And I'd like to pray for your marriage this morning. So if you're with your spouse, just reach out and take their hand. Hold on tight. And we're going to close with with prayer. Father in heaven, we're just humbled by what it is that you want to, to help us understand about you in the amazing ways that you go about showing us what love is like. And here today, we celebrate marriage and the gift that you've given it to us to be. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to slow down and to make sure that it remains a priority in our day, that we wake up thinking about you and your kingdom and how I can be better at the role that I have to play as a husband or a wife. Father, give us strength. Show us in your word and the resources that are available to us. Help us to make some courageous decisions to to, to commit to putting time and effort into learning how to be a better spouse. If we've been carrying the weight of an unresolved issue, give us the courage. Give, give somebody the strength to step up and own their part and say, I'm sorry. God, you've given us the abilities to have one of the greatest blessings this side of heaven. And I pray that you'd give us the strength to take care of it. So, Lord, meet us where we are, in the middle of our, of our mess, in the middle of a great relationship that, that we love and enjoy, and help us to understand there's even more. And as we pursue those kinds of relationships, that, Father, it gives the world a clear picture of what happily ever after really might look like. I thank you for the the husbands and wives in this room who have been loving each other for decades, for the wisdom that is available to us if we just ask. Help us, Lord, to do whatever it takes to make that relationship right, to make it the resource that you designed it to be for our happiness and for your kingdom's cause. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.